1: on the London Calling podcast is a man few would argue as deserving of his legendary status. Aslan frontman Christy Dignam has a voice that has been very much embedded in the Irish psyche since the band's debut album release with feel no shame in 1988. To mark the 30th anniversary of the record, which included the band's first hit, This Is, Christy & Co went back on the road earlier this year, covering much of Ireland. This coming Saturday, they bring their catalogue of much-loved songs to London to celebrate with their fans here. Ahead of that gig... Christy revealed to me the story behind the music, spoke about the early days of Aslan, and opened up about how his terminal cancer diagnosis has changed his perspective on life. Christy, how are you keeping? Well,
0: I'm back on the table. you know, it's a bit of a time in the arse, but uh, I mean, you just have to get on, it, get on with it, you know. I mean, I'll be on it for the next few months or so, you know. Yeah. See, the condition I have is the same condition that Martin, you know, Martin McGuinness.
1: Yes, thing. yes, yes. Yeah.
0: It's the same condition he died of It's a condition called amyloidosis. So it's very rare and I'd have to go up to the Royal Free in London and Hampstead to get treated because um you don't really, it's that's the centre of excellence for this condition. Because you don't really know much about it. I think that there was the year I got diagnosed, I think there was two other people diagnosed that year. With it, you know, it's kind of one of a million jobs. But anyway, when you get a cancer, you really want to get a, a, a common cancer. There's a lot of research coming into, you know. Yes. You don't really want to get a rare one. Anyway, so basically, it's, it's a terminal condition. I'll just get this all out of the way now. It's it. a terminal condition. and uh, you, you touch on chemo to kind of hold that day, you know, and then that holds that day for a period of time. And then it comes back and you have to go back on chemo. So that's the way it's been for the last five years.
1: And How are you feeling about the upcoming gig in London next Saturday. When was the last
0: time you um, guys played in London? Um, we played there in the summer, it was August. I was playing in London, so I love it. It's great. I, just, I like playing over in England, you know, because you get the expats, you know, you get the Irish people who've been living out there for a while, but also get a lot of locals that, you know, that will come to the gig. So it's great. I love playing in London, it's great. So you have fond memories of okay. playing gigs here? Ah, uh, yeah. We have always had we've always had a great a great relationship over there with the with the people, you know. So it, it, it's the last the last few times you played, we played, we've played in nails. So this is our first time in, in, in this in, in this, this this subterranean. So I don't know I don't know um this venue really, but I'm looking forward to the gig anyway.
1: And how have the run of shows been across Ireland so far, because I know it's the thirtieth anniversary
0: of, of the Feel No Shame album.
1: Yeah. Have you enjoyed playing well, that, those songs again?
0: It was great. I mean, initially it was a bit of a it was a bit of a struggle because I just when we started playing the songs, I said, holy shit, you know, the speed of these songs. Because you know, over the years you kind of mellow out and you kind of chill. And even subconsciously, when you're setting up your set, you're setting it up, and you, you know, you're kind of pulling out songs that would be too. And so when we started doing these songs, I said, holy fuck, this is unbelievable. You know, mm-hmm. just how much energy and kind of angst we had at that stage. You know, but it's great, and we've never. I don't think we've ever been as Popular as we are now, you know, the gigs are flying over here. Like anything we do has been sold out over the land. We did two wavy Gardens here, yeah. ten thousand people during the summer. Like any all of, any gig, and then we played at a, a, a festival in Liverpool, um, at the uh, during the summer as well, twenty thousand people. It's amazing. So it's been going, Brent. I really have. So
1: have you noticed so, a young uh, a younger generation being present at the gigs?
0: Yeah, listen, that's the thing, going You couldn't sustain. We couldn't sustain a career, you know, or, uh, we couldn't sustain gigging and working with, with, with just to rely on people of our age group, you know, because, uh, you know, in, in our reality, our age group are all married now with kids and stuff and that, just kind to live in their lives, and they don't go to gigs anymore, they don't. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, obviously we get a feel of those people, but if we didn't get the younger generation coming up behind them, we wouldn't be able to survive. And that's the surprising thing. You know, I you know I don't know why that is. I I, I can't really get my finger on it, but it's brilliant that I, that it
1: is that way. You know. Yeah, I think it's just maybe parents passing down that good music. It was for me that was the case anyway. My dad introduced me to Aslan and, and Van Morris and a lot of good music at an early age. Did your did your parents did your father um, uh, introduce you to or, or influence you in any way with his music? Was what kind of music was playing in your yeah, house? Yeah, he did.
0: Time? did but not in not not in a rock and roll. My dad was my dad was into opera music. Really? So but it, it, he walked he worked in the um in CIE for forty years. He was a coach from I used to do the season C E. But on Saturday on Sunday he'd be off and he used to make the dinner on a Sunday. And he used to play John McCormick records or Caruso stuff like that. So when he was making the dinner he'd have these songs glass and And uh I kinda got into I, I, I that's where I my initial mind of, Mm. introduction to music was. So then years later then like I always wanted to be a singer, so we formed a band and we kinda of started off during the punk era, you know, when I started in bands. So it was all that kind of screeching and screaming through kind mm. of guitars at number up to eleven, you know. So I started to lose my voice and lose my range. So then I went around looking for singing teachers and I found this singing teacher in Dublin in the Belcanto school singing on uh North Georgia Street. And I started going to him and he was teaching a style called Del Canto, which is what Paparotti and Caruso, all these people trained under. It's an Italian kind of opera style, and that kind of really introduced me into all of that, you know. So so that's where my influence go. So after that, I mean, it was just like any kid, you know, I would have been been born listening to, I would have been rare listening to Bowie and Mm. Bob Dylan and Pink Floyd, stuff like that, you know. But Bowie was a huge influence. And have to say. Were the
1: influences the same across the band, or were people bringing different different things to the table?
0: Well, yourself and Joe were the kind of... We the, 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 the started the band, and yourself and Joe would have been huge for we fans. And then, obviously, you know, what, what happened is, no matter what, you, you bring, you, you soak up things to as houses. You know what I mean? You don't even realize you are soaking up. Yeah. So when the other people come into the band, they did bring their, you know, their influences, but it was all... We were kind of generally around the same area, you know, and what we listened to.
1: You mentioned you mentioned your dad worked yeah. with, with CIE. What kind of jobs did did you guys have before before the band started to take off when you guys were rehearsing up in up by the airport and right? What kind of what kind of jobs yeah, were you doing? at the
0: time? Well, first of all, my first job, I was on the Saint Patrick. You used to go from to the Harps, and I was a galley boy, and I used to have to go down with a bucket on the front. And I was mostly school tours. And the kids would be puking all over the boat and I used to have to run around after them with a fucking bucket on the mop. Great job. <laughs> then I worked in Claire Wheels and another that was another terrible job, cigarette factory. But then I, I worked on building sites for a while. But my final job was this telephone myself and Joe were telephone. What happened was Joe was working doing aluminium windows and I was working down aluminium in a different a different factory, right? So I'd be off when he'd be working, and he'd be off when I'd be working. We couldn't organise rehearsals. So I left my job, and joined his job. So the two of us were working at the same place, so we had the same time off. Then he left and got a job in Telecom Ireland as a telephone technician. So then I left and got a job as a telephone technician. So we were both working as telephone technicians with Telecom over here. So I went to see a band called Les Enfants we were actually we were playing a gig in a place over here called the Iger down to Parnell Street yeah. and we were playing up upstairs and they were playing downstairs on the same evening right and our gig was fucking jammed and there gig we sneaked down and their gig had of three people at the gig but the following Monday I opened the Herald and there's Les Enfants signed a multi-million pound deal with Chrysalis Records and I was fucking stunned you know because we were kind of I felt we were a better band than I actually do. You know, as a kid, your band is the best band in the world, this kind of thing. And looking back now, you were a great band. But anyway, so I went in the following the next day and I said to the band, I said, listen, I said, well, I'm not a jacking in my job. Joe was jacking in his job. And I felt that because we had these jobs to fall back on, it kind of robs us of the hunger to really go for it. You yeah. know what I mean? So I said, who, who else? Now, at that stage, we were in a band called Meet 18 and there was about seven of us we had, saxophones and keyboards and all this thing. So I was like, who's who's willing to jack in their jobs and there's only a couple there was only two one more jack in their jobs. So those that left us with three of us. So I we went around Dublin then looking for the best drummer I could see in bands to the locality and the best and I got Aslan together. And uh, then we we all we were all not working. That's when we, because we weren't working we couldn't afford uh uh, rehearsal. Uh, rehearsal room, yeah. rehearsals and something. I couldn't with it, the, the professional rehearsal place. So, a friend of ours was living in the airport, and in the airport grounds, and on a London farm, and he had a pigsty on the farm that wasn't being used. So, he, he said, Look, Eason, come up here and just leave a like, gear here, here, you know, and rehearse away. So, that's that's what we, we did that for a year, because I felt at that time, there was all these bands were around Dublin, right, and they all drank in the same places they all kind of hung out in the same places. And the, the, say the bass player out uh, of one band would leave and join one of the other bands in Dublin the next week, and the drummer out of that band would leave and join another band, and there was this genetic sound going around Dublin. And when you yeah. listen to their songs on the radio, if you listen to three songs on the, on the trot, you know, really a DJ you play three songs on the trot, mm. you'd know the early song because the production value would drop so badly, you know. And that was something that I kind of tried to fight against. Look, but let's get out of this Dublin thing, let's just lock ourselves away in this big story, which we did for two years and we wrote the feel no shame album up there. And because we weren't kinda of hanging out in that we weren't getting influenced by anything that was happening in Dublin, you know, we just kinda of, I think developed our own sound kind of thing. And then came out and luckily things kinda of worked out for us when we started gigging, you know. Yeah,
1: they certainly did. And Billy Billy McGuinness wasn't in the original incarnation of the band, was he? But he was coming to rehearsals
0: no. and yeah, he used to come to he used to come to rehearsals, right? And he worked at the time he worked in prepared uh, uh, cake factory. So he used to come up at about two o'clock when he's finished his shift, and, and he'd have a tray of cakes. And the only reason we let him into the band was because of the cakes. <laughs> you know, he used to bring us some cakes. But I I thought he was a bit of an idiot, you know, because he he had his own band, a band called Drill uh, Movies, and you would know, he you do his own, do his covers. He you often know, fucking terrible, you know. So we used to let him do backing vocals on so many gigs you know, just always so keep coming up with the cakes. So we did a day of fanning session. Yeah. And it, the Fanning used to bring you in, him and Ian Wilson bring you into RTE, he'd record two or three songs, and he'd pay you about £200 at the time. And it was the first time he ever earned money from, from the band, you know. Mm. So we got a cheque for £200, and uh, went there, uh, cashed the cheque, and we all dealt the piss, piss you know, had a, a session kind of thing. So the next morning we all turned up for a rehearsal, and Billy in at 9 o'clock, you know, and I said, What the fuck, what are you doing here this early, you know? He said, Oh, he's made me a full member last night, and we we're all looking at each other, and oh, no, fuck, no, no, just don't, you know. Now, that was then, like He has since become like, invaluable to the band, you yeah, know. Yeah. But that's how initially he got into the band, yeah. So he arrived on that
1: morning with no cakes, and you were thinking, What?
0: What's he no cakes. Mine is the cake.
1: <laughs> and so, you, me- you mentioned. last day when
0: the cakes, but. Right? He has turned out, I have to say, he has turned out to be a very valuable member of the band since, you know. Yeah.
1: And you mentioned, so you guys had locked yourselves away to, to make that. Um, yeah. Make the album. And when This Is was released, and it became a hit yeah. across radio stations, and do you remember, maybe it was a gig or something, but the first moment where you kind of thought, right, we're yeah. actually onto something here, like, does something happen? I do, yeah.
0: We, we, we released it, that record, you know, and it was it it was being played like it was getting played a lot on, on two, I think it was the, the most played Irish song that year on two SM. we won an award and all but that all happened later on in the year. But we were just still in Dublin and we're still gigging around Dublin and down see. You know, the gigs had kinda of gone from two hundred people I say to five hundred, six hundred people kinda of yeah. picking up. So I had increased a little bit my lot nothing to find the right home of them. But um RTA used to run a gig called Lark Lark by the League down in Cork. Mm-hmm. And basically, they'd, they'd have this big open air gig, about 15,000 people, and they'd have bands and, and there was us, a band, Cactus World was the band, headlining it. And a band called, used to be the Blades, the Partisans. they were the second band. I think we were the, we were the, uh, the second, the third band band. We were the first band on really the support band, if really you like. So we came out, and we, were playing, and we started playing pieces, and the crowd started singing back to us, and it was, 50, as I say, it was 15,000 people. And I remember looking at the bar and going, holy shit, you know. And that was the moment where we kind of thought, oh, holy fuck, there's something happening here, you know. And yeah. then I kind of just snowballed and fucked
1: that, you know. Where, where has some, that was the moment, I okay. And where, is there anywhere in particular that surprised you the most, in terms of having a following around the world? Absolutely. Well, I
0: mean, we've gone, we've been, like, we've, I suppose, we've played some weird places. We played like at the, the GAA games in Bahrain. The GAA finals in Bahrain and uh, that was a really crazy game. Places like that, Dubois Boy and then you go to, you know, I mean all over Australia and America and stuff. And when you go to places like that, you know, like when we went to even to England. When we went to England first and I'm sure you'd know this as as an Irishman going to England, mm. when you when we were going there as young kids, you know, we taught over here they're going to be cooler, you know, the bands are going to dress better, they're going to sound better, you know, they're going to be more clued in to rock and roll and, you know, what's, you know, what's good in rock and roll. So we were over with this kind of subservient, almost, attitude to ourselves, you know. Mm. And we found out that the complete opposite was the case, you know. And because we are Irish, and because of what you mentioned, the likes of Van Morrison, Sinead O'Connor, you two people that have gone before us and paved the way for bands like us, People expected a certain standard. And I found that, you know, because we went, again, probably for the same reasons that we stayed out of the Dublin scene, we said, you know, that, that the same thing was obviously happening all over England. You know, where bands are looking at what's happening in the church, and we followed that kind of trend. And because we were separate from all that, you know, people kind of that, that responded to us, you know. and We found even going to America, you know, the home or up and guitar, you know, the same thing and it was it was not, not the case. If like you found it in, in the places like America, there were bands that were great at being cover bands, you know, like it still it, it, it comes to be known by Pink Floyd and it'd be exactly no for no the way Pink Floyd played. But if you tried to get them to um, play an original to be original, you just couldn't do it, you know, there was just no originality and anything to know yeah. And it kinda of reminded me of I remember going on Grafton Street one day and there was this going drawing on ground, I if to draw the chart kind of portraits on the mm-hmm. ground, and he drew the Mona Lisa, and I was looking, and I remember thinking it was an exact replica of the Mona Lisa, and it's very, very easy to copy art, you know, it's not very easy, but it's relatively easy to copy yeah. art, but it's very, very hard to come up with something new and something you know original, and that's something that um, that we were able to do, I think, and I kind of separate us from the crowd at that time. I think that's always been the
1: case. And I've heard you say before as well, you were talking about idioms and people, Irish musicians and artists and singers, adopting certain idioms uh, and words that maybe it English or American... Me. kills you. It
0: kills me. Uh, and I've seen so many good bands, you know, over the years. And uh, even now, and I don't, don't, I'm not going to mention bands because I'm not going to start to carry on, but, but, you know, it just kills me, you know, that mid-Atlantic thing. And see, that, that was something that went to go back to the singing lesson. When I went to, to the singing teacher, like basically what, you know, he said, what happens is to singers as that kind of going growing, they, they listen to it. He say the way David Bowie says, wall, window and court. Do you like the way he says that? Do you like the way Mick Jagger says, eh, press, glass and cigarette? Do you like the way Beyonce says floor? Uh, anyway, they're all idioms. So they absorb all these idioms. And when they sing then, you have this mid-atlantic or a british accent in their singing you know because you've adopted all those idioms so my singing teacher saying what we need to do is the only thing you have to offer the world is what christy bignam sounds like so we need to strip away all those fucking idioms that you've soaked up throughout your life and just get back to what what you sound like and that's something that strive her so when i hear other bands doing it now it really gets me because i've seen i've seen bands that could have been good you know. If just got that singer, and I've kind of said it to singers, you know, I saying, Listen, where where wherever you're born, you know? Stop fucking singing in that English accent Like Damien Dempsey has it nailed, you know, the way he's, you know he sings in his own. It's a good example, yeah. You know, it, it yeah, it, you know, it, 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 it is now Bob Marley. You see what happened, what what the mistake Ryan is this. When we listen to Bob Marley, right, and we listen to Damon Alban or whoever we happen to listen to, that sounds exotic to us from here. But equally, when they hear us sing in our in our hour our in hour, 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 language, that's exotic to them, you know. Exactly. And that's what these bands don't understand. And if you're a, if you're going to imitate something, you're only going to be a pale imitation of that, whatever you're imitating. And I've, I've said this to a lot of bands, and you don't get thanks. So like bands will ask you, what you know, what do you think of the gig, or what do you think of me demo, and. You know, you, I mean, without being cruel, you try to be constructively critic, you know, give them a, a sort of critique, and they just don't they like it, you know, they sound. And they're saying, look, I wouldn't be doing any favours if I said this is all brilliant and there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not doing any favours, this is what I think, you know, and it's only my opinion. Yeah. But bands don't
1: thank you for it, you know. So. Well, that's the one thing that, the one word you think of when you associate, that you'd associate with Aslan is authentic, and that's that's been the case for, you know, across your career, is that, that's never changed, you know. Does everything's music's always been genuine, you know what I mean?
0: Well, that's what we try. You, you know, where were you? Where were you? Where are you from, Ryan? I'm from Cork. Cork, right? Well, Cork would probably be similar. You know, when you were born, and we were born in a working class part of Dublin, you know, Finglas, Balbriggan, a little lots of Laois, a and that, and we still kind of live in the general areas of where we all are raised, you know, Now we kind of were pretentious in any way. You know yourselves, cog people are very like double people in that sense. They have a wicked sense of humour, you know, and they let you know on a fucking heartbeat that they're being pretentious or you are a bit of an asshole, do you that's know for what sure, I mean? Yeah. And I, when, we'd, when we'd be writing songs, I'd be thinking of Mikey Ewart who lived across the road, you Now, what would he be thinking? Oh, fuck, that he'd tear the piss out of me if I put this in a song, do you know yeah. what I mean? And so I, that's so... That I've always tried to, you know, and the only thing we can, when you pull everything else away, the only thing you can rely on is your own kind of opinion, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so we, that's why we've always tried to be, uh, uh, you know, so that's a huge compliment that you would say that, you know. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you see us that way. And, and on a
1: similar note, then, you've you've had people in your careers kind of label you guys as kind of, you know, the band of the north side or the band of Fingless and stuff, and I know that that's something that maybe you guys have been fairly self conscious about and want to avoid because it's um there's so much yeah. more than that. Yeah look it's just
0: bullshit you know you know the, so like I've said this before, the attitude is found in Ireland sometimes. Not 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 totally, but in some parts of Ireland is, you know, in between robbing cars and boggling houses with like the odd song kind of thing, you know, that what is the kind of hard man from the north side of Dublin. And you know, that's, people that think like that are very small minded, well a lot more than that, you know. And we don't cross cars about vulgar houses anyway. But you know what I'm saying, He had this kind of north side, south side divide, which to me is a type of racism, I mean, really, you know, it's, hmm. and it's bullshit, it's absolute bullshit. You know, we're Irish, I'm very proud that that are from Ireland. And that's where it starts. I don't, I don't want to be colloquial, I don't want to you know, to, to bring it down to just I mean, where on where the word stop at your fucking heart though. No. You know, I'm from eleven and Court, you know, so that's that's where that's what mean identity is. Yeah. you know what I'm saying? Where does yeah, the do, identity yeah. begin and where does it end? So I don't mind the stopping my being Irish. or Irish and I'm very, I love being Irish. I love everything about Ireland. Well not everything but I love Ireland I, 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 slow, I say, when I the that has its laws as you and I struggled with air of them. But um, you know it is a great place. It's a great country. And you go down to places like Cork, and I'm not just saying it because you're from Cork, but if you you ask anybody who's ever been to a gig in Cork, I've said it a lot of times though, because of that gig I mentioned earlier on, Cork has always held a very special place for us, because it was the first, you know, it was our first kind of taste of of success if you like. Mm -hmm. But I found there are some parts of Ireland that when you pay your 20 euros or whatever it is into a gig, and um, the audience are, you know, well, I, pay 20, I pay 20 euros now entertain me. Where in Cork, the kind of their attitude is I pay 20 euros and I'm not fucking enjoying myself, you know. Yeah. And because of that, just change of mentality. The gigs are always great. And I love playing. I absolutely love playing Cork. So, so you know, there are some, there's some great places. I mean, we've been very lucky, you know, we've played a lot. Germany as well, which is very good. And when you're in, when you're in somewhere like Germany for example, and you're, I'll, I'll do the gig away, i do it anywhere, and when I get, you get the audience still singing back to you and stuff like that. So when you're hearing people go, how could I put, it? you know, that fucking German accent coming back, I suppose, you know, it really is.
1: I wanted to mention uh, another great Irish uh, singer as well, and someone I know you're good friends with, Finbar Fiori. Um, and one of my, yeah. one of my favourite things that you've done over the last couple of years was your, it's your performance of Green Fields of France with Finbar and on the Late Show, which has amassed loads and oh, loads yeah. of views on YouTube that video clip. Um, what's your relationship like with
0: Finbar and, and how close are you to? him I'm actually doing an album at the moment. Really? Because yeah, when I got diagnosed, uh, Ryan, so something because again, because I'm Irish, you know, I grew up at parties singing, you know, Wolfstone songs and, you know, whatever, you know, all the ballady kind of traditional songs. You kinda you know, as a young teenager. Your kind of singing all. We used to, you'd, you'd get your kind of flag and or up the field around the fire, and you'd be singing all the black and come out, huh? like, you know, James Connolly and all these songs. So I kind of, a th- th- part of me loves all that, the whole, not the rebellion part of it, but just the traditional kind of ballad thing, you know. So on a book at list, when I got diagnosed, you know, I, I, I always wanted to do a trad type album, you know, mm. just for myself. I didn't think it would ever sell anything. It, it wasn't a bit, you know, it wasn't about going out there and you know trying to make you know a new career. And It was just about doing something for myself, you know, just to have on my a list. So um, I planned, we'd go to myself and Tim. That's how I ended up on the show on that day. We are planning to do an album together. You know, so when that when the when we were in RTE, the boy was we only had a verse of the Rainfields of France. So you know, he said, "Look, we you do just a verse of the Rainfields of France while they're sitting there." Yeah. So during the day, we were at like the rehearsal. And Ryan told me he was there, so we started playing it. So we stopped at the end of the verse, and Ryan was kind of what the fuck keep going, keep going. So we kept going, and we ended up doing two verses and two choruses. But the stage manager came over and said, oh, "Look, we've only got 38.3 seconds for this section." That's the way RT kind of yeah, operates, you yeah. know. And Ryan called the fuck off. He said, "There's no way we're stopping this after this." So that's how we ended up singing two verses. But the whole thing was very last minute. It was, it was just you couldn't have planned it, you know, if we'd have planned to do that, it wouldn't have worked out as well, you know, yes. but I think, you know, Simba is very similar to me in, in, in his approach to singing. His heart and soul goes into every note that he sings, you know, and, you know, music is music. I remember years ago, I know I'm going off in here, right. but I remember years ago seeing an interview with Ray Charles, and well, Ray Charles would be one of my favorite singers of all time, like, and did the uh, the interviewer said to him, um, what what you you know you sang blues rock and roll jazz popular music contemporary you sang like all these types of music what's your favorite genre of music to sing you know and Ray Charles says look he says I've only come across two music styles in my whole life he says good music and shit music
1: yeah. he says, and I
0: try and stick with the good music and that's you know to me that, that was a great that was an epiphany for me because. We, I grew up thinking I couldn't do this, and I couldn't do that. I'm in a rock and roll band, so I can't do this and I can't do that. And it's all bullshit, you know. To me, that's a great, great song, you know. And it was a pleasure to be able to sing it. And to be able to sing it with somebody like Simbar Fury, mm. who's soaked in, in Irish culture, you have no idea of mm. the knowledge that man has about Irish music, you know. Like, even on the album, we're doing some songs from the 18th century, fucking famine songs, you know. He's amazing, he's an amazing man, you know. And as I said, he puts his heart and soul into everything. So it's just been a, a, a real, it's a very different experience for me as from working with a band, you know. Yeah. that's
1: awesome. a great bloke, you, great bloke. Yeah. Uh, your daughter, Keira, um, you performed to her a couple of times as well and you did a great cover of um, Under Pressure by David Bowie on the Lele show a few years back. That must be very nice to that's right. have the opportunity to perform yeah. with your daughter nowadays.
0: It's a lovely buzz. I mean, I had... She, she's very, um, she's very weird. Not weird, but she doesn't like kind of being, she, she doesn't like being associated with me. I know she has to be because she's can tell her. Mm-hmm. But it, it seems to be, work, it seems to work against her more than for her in this, in the business. You know, people think, gosh, she's only fucking getting this because of who she is and all that. And she's not, she's a really good singer, you know. Mm-hmm. I been telling her <laughs> to try and write some songs, you know, that she's not really getting that that, that um, respect because She's just covered the songs all the time, you know, there's nothing wrong with covering a song, you know, I'm mixing her in with your own stuff, you know. And she's not really doing that. But I think, you know, so that was me just to having a moment with her, you know, and it was it was really nice to do But in general she like I'd actually do more with her if I could, but she just doesn't want to actually say her own boat. She's not really kids there. Yeah, 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 of course. And I know that um since
1: you've been ill as well, before you you were ill, you um, you taught a lot of bel canto and you were involved in teaching singing, and you've kind of had to step back from that a bit since since your illness. Is that something you really miss?
0: Yeah, well, you know, it was, I, I, yeah, I opened, yeah, the school. I, mean, I do miss it a lot because you know there were some, you know, there are so many. When you look at it now, right, look look at all the bands that are happening. If you you pick the top twenty now, or, Albums and, and singles, and pull out a few really, really good singers. Out there was that, and it's there are very few and far between, you know. And you know, people think, you know, they go off and they learn how to play guitar, and they get lessons, and they get piano lessons, or drum lessons, or whatever. But well, people don't really think about singing. You know, you think anybody can sing, you know. And singing is a fucking art form. I spent 15 years training singing in the Belcanto, and I still. Like the more they know, the more they know they don't know, kind of thing. You'll never be, you'll never know it, know everything about singing. It's just such a complex thing, you know. And people realise that. So for me, it was great to be able to, you know, get these, you know, kids and kind of show them that there is another way. Because the pleasure you get when you're singing well and you're on top of your voice, and you're in control of your voice, there's no better pleasure than that, you know, when you go out and do a gig, and you know you sang well, you know, that it's a it's a great, and on the opposite side of that, when you go out and do a gig, and you're struggling, and you're kind of, you're not enjoying the singing, it's a fucking nightmare, you know, yeah. so it was great to be able to teach kids, you know, and bring them to another level, and show them a different, a different thing about, a different side to singing, you know, so I do miss that a lot, but, you know, again, there was, there was I could do. And the way it is now, I'm still spending a lot of time in hospitals. And like I said, I have to go to Bow here every week to give bloods. Basically, what happens is they send the bloods over to the Royal right Free in London. Mm. And then I'm over there. I'm actually over there next month, just after the gig. And uh, so I, I wouldn't be able to, to keep the skill because I, I was trying to do for a while and I was cancelling, and it wasn't fair on, on the people that I was taking. It wasn't just kids, there was other people coming as well. Yeah. But yeah,
1: it might be something I, I go back to in the future if there is a future so. Yeah, I mean, but it's you've had some bizarre experiences in the past where I know that Jerry Ryan, for example, announced on radio once that you know of your demise um yeah. and said that Christy Dignam is, is no longer with us. You know, and it, there's been yeah. a couple of cases of that. That must be a very strange experience to go through um at the time. Yeah, it's happened a couple
0: of it happened again recently with the with the diagnosis thing, but after I got diagnosed, you know. But what you know I what happened in that case was I was driving the car and Jerry Ryan played upstairs uh, and he goes, Yes, he played a crazy work and what time he played, played on the sound and he said, Listen, we just heard some tragic news on the you know on the grapevine Christy Digging and blah blah blah. So I rang the guy that was looking after at the time, I said, we'll check out what the fuck is going on. I said, because a few people that day had rang the house earlier on today and said he'd heard, you know, and we were just pushing her off at first, but then it kept happening. And then when this happened, it was kind of the last stop. So anyway, it turned out that the rang a boy who lives near me, who I know, right? And he said that he, he was outside my house and the ambulance man was coming out with me on this stretcher and the blankets fell off me face. And I seen it was definitely Christy Dignam. And he could that's what confirmed it for them, you know. Jesus. So what it turned out to be was, a guy that lives near me was called Christopher Dignam. And uh, he had died of a heart attack or something like that. And uh, that's thats what the mix-up was. But uh, that, that's happened. that it's, it's surreal, you know. That, that's all I can say to you, it's fucking surreal. Yeah. But equally, you know, when I, when I came out of hospital first, you had to take care of a night for Christie in the Olympian. And it was a, it was a brilliant night. And basically, what he did, he had the likes of Paul Brady, mm. uh Gavin James, Daniel, the Coronas, the are, uh, uh fucking everybody. And they were all singing an Aslan song. And uh, the U2 did This Is. At the end, they were in America at the time. So they recorded a video of This Is, and over and was shown on the night. But I was sitting, i have never been in the Olympian Dublin,
1: I've been there twice, twice for gigs before, yeah.
0: Yeah, right. So you know the little boxes, you know the little boxes where the two elves and the muppets sit, Yeah. You know yeah, the, yeah. the little boxes outside the stage. So I was sitting there, you know, and this big photograph of me behind the stage, you know, and all these people were singing Aslan. The band were all playing, and they had all these singers coming up singing an Aslan song. And I remember thinking, this is this usually doesn't happen until you're dead, you know. And that was fucking weird, you know. Like, like similarly, like. Jerry Lyon thing yeah. I remember sitting there thinking like I'm really this is like being dead and coming back you know as a ghost and looking at you know this tribute that's being paid to you, and, 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 you know was fucking weird really yeah. weird how many people but, can say they've had that experience that's you know, very strange no it's, you know was very very strange very surreal you know but it was good I, I kind of bogged me away through half of the gig because yeah. it was really it was very touching because a lot of the songs you know Sometimes I think, you know, you get too close to to your own music, and I listen to some of the songs and I think, fuck me, that's not a bad song. (laughs) And then I hear another song, you know, because when I'm singing them, they're kind of so close. And when I listen, when I listen to anything that I've ever recorded, it's all I hear is all the flaws. I think, fuck, I should have sang that this way, I should have sang. Similarly with yourself, that you're writing as a journalist, you know. If you write an article, when you read back and name go, fuck, I shouldn't have said that this way, I should have said it that way. You know, you find all the flaws, you don't see the virtues in it, you know. Yeah. And similarly with me with the songs, I don't see the virtues, I just see all the flaws. So when I heard these other singers singing it, I thought, fuck me, they aren't scared, they don't have those songs, you know. It was, it was great, it was a really good experience to have. And as you say, not many people would have that experience, you know, in real life to have it. Yeah,
1: well,
0: uh- like a lot of a lot of
1: Irish artists have, you know, there's been a lot of Irish artists who have come, made with the money, brought a couple of albums, singles, top hits, and then they've gone again. Whereas you guys have been around for thirty-five years now. So, and I mean, your some of your songs, obviously, Crazy World, and this is, I mean, we will live long into the future in the Irish psyche. You know, um, I was wondering, is legacy something that's like very important to you now? Absolutely, it's probably the
0: most important thing now. Yeah. I mean, now that I'm at the point now, I mean. The situation I'm in now, Ryan, is that the cancer, last year we played a gig in Limerick, right? And this girl was beside me and she sneezed into me, saying, you know, they were pups, but she started sneezing and coughing. She, well, I was getting a selfie, you know, people you know, come up, get, people can get selfies now. I said, all the last off some years ago. But anyway, she coughed and it was in the back and spluttered in front of me as we were doing it, you know. And I picked up a fucking jam off her. And because of, with the chemo, my immune system is totally depleted. I ended up going into sepsis. So by the next day, I came home and I, had, I was pushed to the hospital, and the kidneys were failing, and my liver was failing because I was in sepsis. And they had to put me on fucking massive antibiotics and antifungals and antivirals and all this sort of So for three days, I was literally at death's door, you know. And it, it could be something like that that catches me, as opposed to the cancer, you know, you know, some side issue, some complication due to the cancer, you know. Yeah. So. Everything I do, even this gig in London, you know, everything you do could be the last time you do it, you know. I have to be conscious of that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So because of that, absolutely, because my legacy is very important. And, you know, when I I did a, a, a TV show with, a, what was his name? I can't it fucking I,
1: mean, just gonna,
0: I have chemo brain at the moment, that's why I'm bleeding. Anyway, I did this interview. He, he said the same thing that you said there. He said, do you realize the way that this is a crazy world are nearly in George Ur- Ur- DNA at this stage, you know? Mm. And like that's a huge, huge compliment. Because one thing about Irish people are, the Irish audience is there. If something is good, they'll acknowledge it. But equally, if something is not good, they'll acknowledge that as well. and you let you fucking know, you know? Yeah. And the fact that those songs have been... You know, I've got, I've stood the test of time, you know, and the mm-hmm. fact that that was still able to gig at the level we're still gigging at, you know, and I think that only goes. It's from the it's the absolute love and passion we still have for it, you know. Like if we if we didn't have that, this business, as you probably have seen you now, but it's a shitty business, you know. It's a very cutthroat, ruthless business, and it's kind of like growing team that you see that stand on that mothers for success and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and it's not really. It's not really what I'm into, you know. So, to be able to retain the success we have without having to be that, you know, it's, it's huge for me. And to have those songs, and to be able to still do it, I just... You know, I wouldn't be able to tolerate all the rest of the bullshit that goes with this business, if it wasn't for that the two hours that we have on stage, where it's just you and the audience, you know. And as long as you have that, you know, we will keep doing it, you know. Because, I tell to be, I said this before as well, I'd hate to be flogging a dead horse where people would be kind of saying, does he not know that's fucking all over, you know, he shouldn't be still doing it, he's crap now, you know, or whatever. I'd hate to be that kind of person, you know. Yeah. And until that happens, I think I'll, I'll keep doing it, you know. So, yeah, legacy is very important.
1: It sounds like you're you're enjoying the things that you're doing at the moment, though. I mean, you mentioned making music with Finn Bar, who's a good friend of yours, and, you know, you're still getting up on stage and performing to people, and, you, you know, you're saying you're, you're really kind of appreciating that Now, because you, you you never know, you never know what's coming. Um, would you say but you're, you're in idea. a happy place? Would I say? What? You're in a happy place at the moment. Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it's obviously you know if I if I had a choice, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't take this life to kind of live the, you know the, the the rest of my life. But um, it is what it is, and I have to just make the best of it. Yeah, you know one thing about being diagnosed with a terminal illness is, it says, if, if fucking focuses you, you know, you start, you start realizing what's important tonight, you know, the, you kind of, you don't really tolerate the bullshit, you don't entertain the bullshit as much as you used to when you were a kid, you know, yeah. and uh, so for that reason it's great, you know, and I you know, like the likes of Simba, he'd be the same, you know, if, if I was a bullshit artist, he'd see it in, in an instant, you know, and, you know, he, he'd let you fucking know, because he's like that, that's the type of person he is, so yeah, you know it does. It kind of focuses you, and you start you start looking at what's valuable in your life, and what's what's you know what's worth what's worth sticking, and what's worth spending time. though. even with family, like when I got diagnosed first, you know I was looking at the house I lived in, the car I drove. None of those things were imp- were important, you know. The only thing that was important to me was my family and close friends, you know. That's all. I just wanted to kind of spend more time with them, and you know. And, Equally with the band, I wanted to try and get anything that I want that I have to do out of my system, you know, like like this study album that I was doing with M- Timber, yeah. I wanted to kind of get these things done, you know, because these are things that I've been long fingered for years, you
1: know. You've been in the last couple of years. You were you were involved last winter with a uh, Apollo House, um, and you've you've, yeah. you've 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 been you've been involved in. You've spoken a lot about uh, the homelessness crisis in in Dublin and Ireland. I mean, it is certainly a crisis at the moment, and we're yeah. coming into winter now, which is you know, a terrifying time of year. Yep. There's going to be a lot of bad stories in the news. Um, you know, we're going to hear about a lot of, a lot of uh, deaths on the streets because people just have, yep. n- have nowhere to go. Um, do, you, do you have any hope, um, as a, a Dublin man, and when you walk around Dublin and parts of Fingles and Ballymun, do you have any hope that that situation is going to improve anytime soon? I
0: don't think so, no. You know, I, what's killing me is, you know, even, even the thing you mentioned there about the Apollo housing line, kind of learned a lot of When we do things like that, Brian, we're letting the fucking government off the hook, the hook. Do you know what I mean? It's not our fucking job to go out and make people aware of homeless. You don't. I don't have to stand in the Apollo House singing a song but people to know what's going on in the streets of Dublin. You fucking go into Dublin and stare in front of you, you know? And I kind of let the government off the hook because while everybody's talking about Apollo House, they're not getting to the nitty gritty of some bloke looking in a the, in the fucking People pissing mm-hmm. on them and they're not willing to sleep. But I don't know if you've seen that thing of like a Dublin guy getting, like getting a kick in the face coming at a, at a Dublin match the other day. Some bloke kicked this countless guy and took a video on that phone. He got a kick so in the face. That, huh? It's horrific. And the like with all the fucking money that's coming into the country now, we're supposed to be rich at the moment. But nothing has changed. This is what kills me, Ryan. Like, I, I still, have, my father still lives in England, so I still spend a lot of time. I still up there. I have friends that are still there. Like. The year 2000, the Celtic Tiger, the height of the Celtic Tiger, 2000, 2004, nothing changed in Fingless. We didn't see any fucking benefit of the Celtic Tiger, right? Then you had 2007, the crash happened. Didn't change fuck all in Fingles. Then, we're back now to 2018 and we're rich again. Still nothing has fucking changed in Fingles. Do you know what I mean? So this Celtic Tiger thing, and this the new Celtic tiger, whatever that is, has fuck-all effect on the people of English. You know, the working-class areas of Dublin, of Limerick, or Cog, or or whatever whatever the places may be, you know. Their lives don't change. They change marginally, you know. And this has happened again and again and again. And even though there's money coming into this country, even though they they, they can allow Apple off with a fucking whatever, 40 billion pounds tax bill you can't build houses for people it's outrageous but i think when we get involved we actually take away from the problem
1: because we're taking the eye off the
0: fucking real the real situation you know and the government i don't know i've lost faith when this government came in seeing a girl, they said they were going to change everything you know They're going to change this, all these massive fucking pensions that they all get. They're going to change all the way, you know, this privileged life that all these TDs live. They haven't changed one iota, not one iota has they changed in any of that. Their pensions have gone up, their wages have gone up, everything has gone up. Where in Singles and Ballymore and and, and, and Cork and Limerick and all these places, it's just remained the fucking same. It's a disgrace. No, to me, it's a fucking disgrace. And I don't see a change because there's no shame. They have absolutely no shame, these people. I mean, if that was. The, I was sitting on a photograph in the paper yesterday of a 92 year old woman who was sitting for a whole day in a chair and she's a blanket wrapped around her in the Matter Hospital in Dublin Air. I mean, for fuck's sake, so if, Leo, nice. if that was Leo Vladka's mother, would he fucking let his mother sleep, sleep like that? He wouldn't, his bollocks, you know. But. You know, you don't get me going on that line right? because it's it just disgraceful what's going on. Where are these people's conscience? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. This is well let's bring it just to a human level. Forget about politics for a minute, just bring it to a human level. Give these people a bit of fucking dignity. There's houses all over Thingless, block boarded up, blocked up, boarded up, and nobody's used. And really cool parts of English that are nice parts of English. And yeah, there's thousands of people living in fucking hotels. Surely if you got the money they're putting into these hotels and put a fucking fraction of it into cleaning up these houses and taking down the boarding and put a family in there. But I, I just can't understand it. It's fucking ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense, does it? No, it it's doesn't. And it, it gets me, it really gets me fucking blood boiling, you know? Yeah,
1: and, and, and as someone who's come over here to London last year from Cork and... Every time I've been home, or when I hear stories from being over here, it does. It makes your stomach turn even more because you have that perspective of being outside the country, and you look back and you go,
0: "What in the name of God is going on?" I know, yeah. And like, like I said at the beginning, like I love, I love being Irish. You know what I mean? But when I look at things like that, it fucking makes me. It makes me almost be ashamed of being Irish. You know what I mean? Because for some reason, I don't know what the fuck it is. I thought maybe it's the. um, the Healy Ray mentality of the fucking Irish politics. I don't know what it is. But for some reason, we just seem to come up with sheer politicians. Like, we come up, we, put, we punch above our weight in sport. Like, you know, in, 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 our, in our sailors during the Olympics. You know, in soccer, I know oh, we're not great soccer. So, I look at the rugby. We punch above our weight. Yeah. Katie Taylor, boxing above our weight our musicians you do punch above that fucking weight river dance just for you know it, for show, showmanship and dance you know we punch above our weight and politicians we punch well below our weight because these politicians just seem to be out for, for themselves and it seems no matter what they've gotten into it for you end up just throwing the party going you yeah. know that's what I, that's what seems to be happening and it, it almost makes me ashamed to be Irish. It's a sad state of affairs. Well, on a
1: happier note, yeah. um, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see you guys play next start uh, of the week. Um, so sure. so thank you so much well, for your we'll time, I hope say hello at the games, because you
0: know you to be MCU, so play to yeah, play. That'll be great. Thank you so much for your time, Christy. I really appreciate it. No problem.
1: Pleasure. Aslan plays Subterranea in West London this coming Saturday night, with a handful of tickets still available. Thanks to Christy for his time, and if you have any suggestions for future guests for the podcast... Let us know via the Irish Post Facebook, Twitter or on the London Calling Podcast SoundCloud page. Thanks for listening and we'll be back again in the coming weeks with another episode.